This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. Good afternoon. I'm Marissa Lennox in for Libby Snymer. I'll be with you today and tomorrow, and then Libby's back on Monday. It is Thursday, and so we talk all things municipal, including the fact that October's municipal election is fast approaching. And already seven city councillors have announced that they will not be seeking re-election. One of those individuals is veteran Toronto councillor Mike Layton, who made the announcement yesterday. He is making a guest appearance on our Tune Into the Town panel. And in just a moment, I will welcome him and the others. But first, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. And now it's time to tune into the town. Let's bring in Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, and Councillor Mike Layton. Good to have you all with me. Good afternoon. Councillor, <laughs> I imagine this was a difficult decision for you to make. Well, it certainly was. And the last couple of months, I've put a lot of thought to this uh, in, in reflecting back on what I've accomplished over the past 12 years, also looking forward as to what I want to accomplish. And one of the things that weighs pretty heavy on my mind is uh, spending time with my little kids. I got two little girls at home and um, the, the the life of a municipal popula- a municipal councillor with a very quickly developing ward uh, means that most evenings I'm away at meetings. And during COVID, it, it was a little bit manageable because I was at home on the screen. But when we get back to in-person meetings, it means typically about four nights a week and then a couple events on weekends that I'm expected to be at. And and frankly, I've missed far too many bedtimes. And so that's one of the major thing, one of the, my major, major motivations. And the other is uh, I, I'm, I really want to be having more of an impact directly on climate solutions. And I'm finding I've, I've worked very hard to get the city in a good place around our Transform TO climate action plan. I've, I've been a leader on that, but it's passed and it's in the hands of others to implement. Well, I want to get my hands dirty and make sure that we're doing the necess- taking the necessary steps as a city, as a province, as a country uh, to fight climate change, again, for my little girls and that generation. Uh, and so for that reason, I thought, uh, you know what, I can be proud of what I've accomplished here, but it's time to move on and, and, and look to have influence in a, different, in a different arena. Well, you and I have that in common. I, too, have two little girls at home, and so I can relate to it. And I appreciate your vulnerability there. But you mentioned, uh, look back on things you're proud of. What is... When you reflect back on your legacy, what is the thing you're most proud of? Well, I think there's a couple things that come to mind. One is I fought in 2011 to reestablish the Indigenous Affairs Committee, and I've served on it ever since. And in that time, we've changed our city procedures and protocols around land acknowledgments. There's Indigenous flags in the square. There's uh, there's soon to be a, a spirit garden at, at, at Nathan Phillips Square that's part of one of the calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But we also got took a lot of tangible steps in getting new funding for an Indigenous Affairs Office first of its can in the country. Uh, we, we recently passed a Reconciliation act, Action Plan that's going to ensure that we're fulfilling all of our commitments to the Indigenous people of Toronto. And then second is around climate. You know, it's probably been the thing that I've worked on the most. Um, there's been a lot of work around safer streets, uh, but also around uh, getting ensuring that Toronto is well positioned to meet its climate targets and actually resourcing a plan to achieve that. And I, I think I, I wrote the, the mayor's um, uh, climate emergency declaration and seconded it. Uh, which set us on a course to net zero by 2040, which is really the now global standard uh, for cities. And we're we're on track uh, if we continue those investments to, to meet that target. So again, time for me to get uh, get my hands dirty and help us meet those targets. Before I bring in David and Karen, just one last question, because the timing is interesting, or maybe it isn't interesting at all, Mike. Why did you make the announcement after the last council meeting when Mayor Tory paid tribute to the other councillors who are leaving? <sighs> 
Well, you know, there was a lot that I wanted to accomplish at that meeting as well. There were some climate items, of, uh, several housing items on the agenda that I wanted to ensure uh, we, we, we finalized and got through. And I wanted to make sure my team knew. Uh, I was still considering what my options uh, were and, and whether or not I could have the impact that, that, I, that I feel I need to have in this, in this point in my life. And uh, if I could balance those private and uh, professional aspects of it. And uh, I, I, I was really making that decision just in the last couple of months. And so I thought I wanted to see through the last council meeting before I made my decision. David, seven city councillors will, will not be seeking re-election. Is it normal to see that kind of exodus? Well, I don't know what normal might be, but I, let me first of all uh, say that, uh, that, as everyone knows, and I'm not being patronizing, Mike has indeed made a great contribution to the mm-hmm. city and its future. Um, and, and, and he deserves our congratulations and thanks. I think he also needs to be congratulated. Maybe it's more appropriate to your question. Um, that he had three good terms of four years. Twelve years is a good long time uh, to be on city council. That, in my own judgment, city council benefits by, by a constant changeover. That we need, you, you need new. It's a very hard job. Mm. It's a grinding job. And you need that. You need to have a new spirit with you, and that very often comes with with new membership and new members on the council. So the fact that seven are going, and many of them make contrib- good contributions, I don't say they don't, but that does allow the door op- to be open for new, fresh thoughts on a new on, 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 a, on a new time for Toronto. Karen, I imagine you also will have some comments here for Mike, so I'll let you get to that. But also, I'll, I'll put the same question to you. Seven seems like a lot of councillors to lead, to not seek re-election. Do you think maybe the pandemic is playing a role here, or it just is such that that is the timing? Uh, uh, for me? Yeah. Yeah, I think, well, you know, I think it's a combination of, of things. And, and congratulations, councillor, for making the decision that you made. Uh, I can assure you that there is a wonderful life after politics and one that you will enjoy very much. Um, but, it, you know, I guess when I looked at it, I was coming up to 11 years uh, when I decided that I needed to do something more. Um, my decision was to run for mayor, and, of course, that didn't work out. So I was invited to leave politics. But it, it was really um, a function of feeling that I had done what I could do at city council, wanting to do, being at a point in my career where I felt I had more to offer, and, and also my family, because my kids were young at the time as well. So there's a number of factors that come into play. But I, I think even more than the pandemic, I think that the merging of the wards is quite significant. Uh, certainly in the colleagues that I've spoken to that are still, that have left council and are still, and are still on council, that it, it, it has been um, an adjustment, an adjustment during COVID and now coming out of COVID, managing the expectations of a counselor for that that increased ward is is really quite significant. Mm -hmm. All right, let's move on. Mayor John Tory is facing the possibility of an integrity commissioner investigation. There was a complaint submitted by, incidentally, the same individual who brought an integrity complaint against the late Rob Ford, which alleges that Mayor Tory has a conflict of interest over his ties to Rogers Communications and a city council decision to end the active TO road closures on Lakeshore. Mike, Mayor Tory, as you know, is a shareholder and an advisor to the Rogers Control Trust, a gig that pays him a hefty $100,000 annually. And when city council was voting on whether or not to continue with this program, one of the reasons citing, cited rather was because the road closures around the Rogers-owned Blue Jays Park were affecting their business. I think I have that correctly. So does voting on the matter then, does he, does he have a problem on his hands? You know, I don't know if technically he was in conflict. I, I would say, though, he's he's been um, very conservative in his approach to his connection to the Rogers Trust in past votes. He's he's quite consistently declared a conflict whenever he has seen that there has been a direct one when we're voting on matters that concern budgets that may impact uh, uh, the Rogers business. Um, so if if there was a conflict in that vote, and I'm not saying that there was, but if there was, I think it was probably just an error on his part. Um, rather, though, there was a number of other reasons why that were cited throughout the report, in fact, from staff, that were reasons why um, they weren't recommending the regular weekly closure, um, some of it construction-based, some of it event-based, and it, 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 it 
they mm-hmm. did recognize that the Blue Jays uh, were or the Blue Jays games were a contributing factor. Um, so, if anything, I think it was it, it was just an error, um, perhaps not realizing that it was there was such a strong connection to the the the, the business of the Blue Jays and the, the benefit to Rogers as a result. Um, but I, I certainly don't think it was intentional because we've seen him declare a conflict on countless occasions. I also I'm, I'm not entirely sure it would have influenced the the, the outcome of the vote. Uh, at the same time, like we need to be careful about these things. We need we want people to trust that their government aren't making decisions that benefit their friends or themselves. Uh, and so we, we, we do always need to be vigilant and careful about it. You're right. There have been numerous instances where he's declared a conflict. 70 so, times or thereabouts. Right. So, you know, this seems perhaps like an oversight, David, but how do you assess the situation? No, I couldn't agree with Mike uh, any more than the way he's put it. Uh, first of all, um, it, could, it, it, it may well be technical. We'll wait for the report from the uh, from the commissioner, who's, whoever's going to be looking at it. Um, and and, and we, there may, it may be he's an error, but I guess I, I guess I need to say this: uh, the, this he, whatever you agree or disagree with the mayor on a specific issue, and I've done both. Um, he's a man of integrity. He would not, in any way, shape, or form, knowingly go against his integrity. And I think I think the number is like two dozen times uh, he has he has st- stood out and said I have a conflict with respect to my connection with Rogers. So he would not be a person who'd be afraid to do so another time. So my guess is it's if it if it happens if it happens that he that he's in, in violation it, it is a, I, I guess I agree with Mike it's it's more technical, but it reminds me that uh, that whether you agree or disagree with Meritori. Um, he's brought to the office a nice sense of integrity. That's for sure. And you wonder if, given that track record, Karen, if that will make a difference um, in the eyes of the integrity commissioner. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess, um, I, I mean, I agree with everything that's been said, but I, all, I also actually feel like it's a bit of a stretch to suggest that he needed clear an interest in this matter because, um he yes, he he has a connection to the Rogers family. It's been well known, well established. But the Blue Jays are a separate entity, and the games are the games. And so, I mean, I I think it would be really, um, as I say, for people who are getting involved in politics and making decisions on behalf of the city, that kind of stretch to declare an interest in the matters would would render many people unable to vote on many things. And so, it, I, I do I think that he's been pretty clear. He's been very upfront. Um, and I, and I think, I don't know, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't actually know what's motivating this other than the fact the fellow didn't like the outcome of the vote. There seems to be a lot of agreement here on the panel today, Mike, but where does this go then? Is is this a gentle slap on the wrist? I believe it's a it's a report from the Integrity Commissioner or a complaint to the Integrity Commissioner. If, if they feel it warrants a uh, report, they might bring one to council next term. But yeah, I don't, I don't suspect it would be anything more than acknowledging that it was a conflict uh, and... Um, I don't it, like it certainly wouldn't impact this summer's active transportation closures. Um, and it'll be some time until we actually get a report, I suspect, if there is one. And the integrity commission will, will determine that. I do wonder, there was a story in Blog TO recently just talking about the mayor's relationship with Rogers not sitting well with Torontonians, you know, not only for this reason, but also because of the recent network outage that, you know, brought the city to a standstill. And so do you think, you know, maybe he should consider putting an end to this relationship or at the very least putting a pause to the relationship until after he's done his time as mayor, David? What would you no, do? No, I don't think so. Uh, I think it was put well by Mike and, uh, earlier and Karen as well. That, that, that in fact, uh, if you if you try and make sure that there's no connection with any outside interest, you'll have a lot of people always having to say that they can't take part in debate uh, and represent their constituents because they may have a conflict. If you're elected to council, the chances are that you're you've been a busy person and therefore you have a number of connections. So unless there's something that really comes up it's really significant in a way that uh, that the mayor has uh, should have, shouldn't have acted and I, I you, you might want to consider that but i think that's way too far uh, from where we are now we are talking to Karen Stintz, David Crombie, and Councillor Mike Layton. It's good to have you guys here. But first, the numbers to call if you want to engage in this conversation, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Now, you probably saw the news, but the Premier 
has listed his house for $400,000, relisted his house, but at a price that is $400,000 less. Karen, does this surprise you about home prices in the GTA? Not at all. Not at all. Um, I witnessed the craziness of what happened on my street and um, houses that were going for sale for a ridiculous sum, semis. Um, And in the space of five months, uh, the same semi had to relist for $200,000 less because of what's happening with interest rates and the uncertainty. So um, it's completely consistent with with what I've seen in my own neighborhood. Mike, how about you? I mean, are, are, are you seeing similar things in your neighborhood? I've never been in a situation where I've listed a house, had to take it down and relist it. Well, I haven't been paying too much attention to the real estate in the neighborhood my, myself, but I, I would say that, uh, like, I, I have seen, um, like, my neighbors recently sold, and I'm not surprised that uh, the price that it went to or went for, and then we saw an immediate slowdown after uh, after that. And so, I like, I, I think it it is, as Karen said, like, this is a matter of the interest rates going up, and um, I, I, I suspect it'll rebound in time, but who knows how long um, we're going to see the interest rates uh, where they where they currently rest, and it certainly um, it, it doesn't seem to be Im- impacting affordability in the city because at the same time uh, there, there's reports of, uh, of of rental properties going going up at That's the same right. time. So um, I, I'm I'm not sure that uh, if if this is here to stay, but certainly we'll see what the what, as time goes by. It's not uncommon for the urban centers to be sort of exempt for these types of market shifts, I think, David, just because everybody wants to be in the city of Toronto and there's so much demand. That said, you're seeing interest rates go up and people are having to make these big decisions. How do you assess it? Well, that's that's exactly right. Uh, uh, What it does do is serve to underline the, A, the volatility of the the, pricing in in the housing market, but also the volatility of the housing market itself, not just its pricing. I mean, the, the city is pricing itself out of people in terms of the, its affordability. And, and therefore, I would think that uh, over the next couple of years, city councils and certainly the province of Ontario and the federal government are going to have to work much, much harder to bring affordability into the reach of most Canadians. Earlier this week, a child was fatally hit by a train west of the Dixie Go station. And this is a difficult story, obviously, to talk about. But Metrolinx, the provincial agency that manages Go Transit, is now working with Peel Police and others on the investigation and are considering the existing level of protection around rail lines. Mike, I don't see an easy solution here. Do you? Well, you know, we've 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 seen similar tragedies in in the city of Toronto around all our, our rail lines. Uh, and oh, well, first I should say, like, there's a four year old girl. I got a little four year old at home. And, I do too. Uh, like how how much it would it, it would destroy a family. My 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 heart breaks uh, for them, and I uh, and for the community and 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 the the, the driver and the and the passengers. Um, I I think that like it it deserves a big rethink on are we doing enough I, I know and, and Karen knows this very well this discussion around uh, subway door uh, door platform uh, uh, or sorry subway platform doors uh, t- towards the same end and, and I think the reality is uh, like sometimes they uh, they they can be helpful but they might not in all cases so I think it it, it always deserves a, a fresh set of eyes and a, and a new look to see if there's solutions to um, the, some of these safety concerns but I would urge the uh, the, the go transit to do whatever they can to ensure that something like this can't happen again. And it isn't the first time, as as Mike mentioned, David, are, are we doing enough? Well, it's hard to tell because I don't know enough about the actual accident itself, but I think that the, the, the sort of uh, uh, godfather of, of railway safety is the, is the federal government's Railway, railway Safety Act. And I would think that when it comes to rail, um, that uh, that uh, provincial in- institutions need to pay attention to it as well. The the, the Railway Safety Act, which I did some work on some years ago, is one which is very comprehensive. At least carries the principles and practicalities that that, that should be required. So I agree with the, what's what's being said, and that is that uh, you constantly have to update um, uh, regulatory beha- regulatory requirements and, and, and in the light of, of people's behaviors. Railway safety has always been a major issue. Railway safety has therefore always had very strong legislative strength. And I think, therefore, Mike's right, Karen's right, that it's essential 
that you, you just take another look at it. There need to be changes. You, you can bet your bet your boots that the federal government, if it's if it's involved through the Railway Safety Act, uh, will, will, will move quickly. I've seen some discussion about fencing, greater fencing around the rail lines. I don't know if it's conceivable that you could possibly fence an entire, I mean, every rail line right across the country, Karen, but any thoughts there? Yeah, this is, um, you know, to echo what's been said, it's a horrific accident and it's a tragedy. And, you know, there's always a question and there will continue to be questions. Could more have been done to prevent this tragedy? Uh, the answer is yes. Of course, it, there could have, there, there's more that could be done. It's just, it's, it's always on reflection, though, it's always in hindsight. And moving forward, you know, we just, there's no, I, I don't think there's any easy solution, as, as the councillor mentioned. Um, even in the TTC, we've seen accidents occur, tragedies occur mm-hmm. that could have been prevented. Um, but there's, but it's so, the, the, the solutions are so difficult because there's, there, we don't have a one size fits all. And if, 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 if these things were easy to implement, they would have already been implemented. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the, it's just the challenge that we face where, you know, we live in a dense urban environment where we're trying to manage many, many things, one being rail lines through cities that when they were, when those lines were first laid, they didn't have the density that they do now. Mm-hmm. And so understanding how each now coexist in that new environment is, is a challenge that, that we're all facing. And, you know, as I said, I only know what I read, but it, it appears that it was a relatively common occurrence to cut through that fence because it saved time getting to Dundas Street. And so, you know, what, what's the solution for that? I, I don't know. Um, so anyway, these, all, all to say is that these are very complicated situations and, and very, very tragic. And, uh, yes, there's more that can be done, but it, it's, it's complicated. Mike, how about fencing the rail lines? Is that a realistic possibility? You know what? I, I'll admit, I don't know enough about the Go Rail corridor through that part of town. Uh, and to, to, to say it would be feasible or not. Um, and there's, there's often a reason why, uh, people are, uh, are crossing in certain locations. Um, it's a convenience. It's, uh, it's a more direct route sort of thing. Um, I would, um, I, so, so I'm not sure if that's the, the solution, but I think they've got to look at seeing if this was preventable and is there a feasible solution that, that can be implemented. All right, we have a few minutes left, but I do have to ask, and it was a promise I made to someone, Mike, are you making a run for the Ontario NDP leader? No, I, I, I'm, I'm talking straight with you. One of the reasons is I want to see my kids. That seems like it would go exactly against why I'm taking a step back from city council. Uh, being, I, I, I have, I have direct knowledge about what, uh, the commitment to being the leader of a, of a party is. And I, I know from being the child of one that it doesn't mean more time with your kids. Um, I was a little older at the time, so it didn't affect our relationship. My kids are young. I'm, you never say never, but at the same time, uh, like I, I've got a couple of years before my kids don't want to spend time with me. I'd, I'd honestly prefer to have those moments with them now, uh, and we can look at what else I should do in politics in the distant future. So what I heard is you won't rule it out. Oh, no, I'm ruling it out this, uh, at, at this moment in time. Uh, at this just, moment? Just let's say I, I won't rule it out forever. Okay. Um, but uh, for at this moment in time, uh, like I'm, it's, it's my honest answer. I want to spend more time with my kids. That's, uh, that's my motivation for this. Uh, and I think, uh, I, I, I don't think the two are compatible. Before we go, it is, we are heading into a long weekend. What are your long weekend plans? David, I'll start with you. I'll be uh, going up. To, I have a cottage up in Georgian Bay and I'll be going up with uh, uh, one daughter and I have, I heard Mike talking about a three-year-old, I think it was, and maybe a five-year-old. I also have a three-year-old, a five-year-old, but they happen to be my great-grandchildren. <laughs> oh, uh, so I'm going to be enjoying their company. <laughs> well, that sounds wonderful. Karen, how about you? Oh, you know what? I've been racking my brain to think of something interesting to say about my long weekend, but I have nothing. Uh, I have, <laughs> I've got gardening work. I have cleaning. Uh, I'm taking a 
a, a holiday in a couple of weeks. And so I have to do a lot of things to get ready for that. But, uh, but the reality is this weekend is, is pretty much about doing a whole lot of nothing. And Mike, I imagine it was a busy week for you, especially the last two days. So hopefully your long weekend plans include some relaxing. Well, after eight, uh, roughly 800 days of being COVID-free, sadly, we got news uh, early this morning that my eldest daughter, my six-year-old, has COVID. She had, hadn't been feeling well for a couple oh, no. days, and we got a PCR test in. So we'll be spending it isolating. I'm sorry other. to hear so that. So enjoying each other's company and hoping that no one that that everyone recovers quickly. M- Mike, <laughs> at the end of this weekend, you might uh, you might have a new perspective on running for the provincial <laughs> leadership. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that true? How's she doing? She's doing okay. Yeah, right. she was she was sicker yesterday, but feeling well today. All right. Well, I wish you and your family the best. Karen Stins, David Crombie, Councillor Mike Layton. Good to have you all here. Thanks very much. When we Thank come you back, much, when we come back, a primary project which tracks COVID in long-term care is shutting down. Why? That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. Welcome back. I'm Marissa Lennox and for Libby's Nimer today and tomorrow, the National Institute on Aging will no longer be operating its long-term care COVID-19 tracker project, which, if you aren't familiar, is really the primary source for compiling data on COVID-19 in long-term care homes. This data is used by the Public Health Agency of Canada, otherwise known as FAC, the Canadian Institute for Health Information, and has contributed to national and international research on COVID. It's important. And yet, the decision was made to pause the project. So why? When long-term care facilities are seeing a major spike in outbreaks, as I understand. Joining me to discuss is Dr. Samir Singha, geriatrician and director of health policy research at the Institute. It's good to have you on the program. Thanks for having me, Marissa. So first of all, uh, you know, I gave a bit of a background, but for our audience, explain to them what the COVID Tracker Project is. Yeah, so this is a voluntary initiative that uh, that our institute uh, led the development of back in, in March of 2020. So when the pandemic was starting and we were starting to see its devastating potential and impact on our long-term care retirement homes, we realized as we were trying to actually gather info and, and get a good handle on things that there wasn't a clear source of data that you could look through at a national level. And even when provinces and territories were reporting their data, they were choosing what they wanted to report, how they wanted to report it. So it was something that was consistent, reliable, um, that allowed for apples to apples comparisons, if you will, um, within Canada, but also between Canada and the rest of the world. So we just said, look, we don't know who's doing this, but we'll start doing it. And uh, and lo and behold, what was surprising to us was there was no leadership from the Canadian government or 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 there wasn't an agreement between the provinces and territories to kind of work on this or how to do it. So it was you know, it was sad when you started having the Public Health Agency of Canada or the Canadian Institutes of Health Information, both federally funded bodies, um, saying, can you help us, you know, yeah. uh, by giving us your data? I was really surprised to learn that, Dr. Singha, that Kaihai uses your data. I think of Kaihai as a place that I go to to seek data. And they use your data and don't have a mandate of their own to collect information on COVID and long-term care. Were you surprised by that? I was, I was, you know, the CEO of Kaihai called me up, I think it was by May and just said, like, our team's amazed with your data. Like, how are you collecting it? And I thought, wait a minute, I thought you were collecting <laughs> it. So it was one of those, it was one of those things where Kaihai itself, you know, it can't just go out and do what it wants, for example. It's generally organizes a partnership between the federal government, provinces and territories. So there are agreements, for example, on certain types of data around hospitalizations and other things that are collected, that are that are standardized, that are sent to the organization in order to, to, for it to fulfill its mandate. But I think, you know, as the pandemic kind of endured, and especially as there's been a lot of, I think, political embarrassment about what's been happening in our long-term care retirement homes, I've seen a growing reluctance uh, amongst provinces and territories to want to continually report this information when hmm. it also kind of reminds you that things, you know, in some areas are, are certainly not getting any better. So is that the reason for needing to pause the program? 
Yeah, the, the main reason was just we just can't really get good, consistent data. There are some provinces like British Columbia that over time, um, they started uh, within a year of, of the pandemic, they started launching through their um, uh, British Columbia CDC a weekly comprehensive report that gives you a full um, line of sight on everything that's happening in their long-term care retirement homes. That's been terrific. Um, we have other provinces or territories that have just never reported this information, um, and it's not really clear. Um, you, you might get some snippets of information here or there through a press release, for example, but they never put it up on a clear provincial dashboard so that people can really get a good sense of what's actually happening. And then I think between, you know, these two variations, if you will, um, everyone's kind of jockeyed a little bit more, uh, or the majority of provinces and territories have jockeyed a little bit more towards just becoming less open and transparent about the data that they have um, and what they're willing to share at this point. Hmm, that's surprising to me. What would you like to see here then? So what we really called at the end of our, we, we produced a summary report that we published today on our website as well. And we really just say at the very end that, look, we're, we're proud that we did this. Um, we did this and we were able to do it quickly um, with a number of volunteers and staff members over the last two years, uh, principally because um, we had donors, um, even Kai High came forward and actually funded a full-time person to help us with data collection. So we had a lot of people who pitched in and supported us to do this, but if this shouldn't be done you know, voluntarily by, you know, a think tank, mm-hmm. this should be led by government. And so our, our, our final call was that we that COVID-19 is here for, for a while. Um, that provinces and territories and the federal government should come together. Um, they should actually agree on standard definitions, and standard data reporting, um, and appoint kind of a group like KIHI uh, with a mandate to actually uh, report um, so that, you know, governments, you know, researchers, um, the media, everybody can have a good sense of what's actually happening and, and how to actually measure progress as well. Have you had any conversations with members of government and get a sense that that that's a possibility moving forward? Honestly, I, I just don't think there's a really an appetite. I mean, I've certainly talked to a number of people across provinces and territories, and I think every province and territory, because they're saying it's our remit to manage the long-term care situation. Um, PHAC is saying, well, we don't actually have that mandate. I think everyone's just pointing fingers at each yeah. other. Um, or just choosing not to even bother answering the question. So it's been interesting. I mean, I have to put my hat off to certain governments like Alberta that came forward, um, you know, and and wanting to partner with us to say, let's make sure that, you know, you have accurate data um, and, and saw the value doing that. And so we had a number of par- provinces, Ontario, New Brunswick, um, Alberta, BC, all, you know, all have been terrific in terms of helping us get the information that we need to know. But for other provinces and territories, they just don't even want to have the conversation. Um, and that's been that's been troubling. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's just made our work impossible. That's disheartening. What is the situation, Dr. Singha, in our long-term care homes? You know, right now, I mean, we, we know that, um, that COVID-19 um, is now having its seventh wave in a number of homes across the country. The more COVID-19 is circulating in the community, the greater likelihood that it'll be getting into, um, into our homes. The good news is, is that now that we've had many residents who've had at least four doses of vaccine in them, the overall death rates have significantly plummeted. It used to be as high as 30% during our first wave. Um, Public Health Ontario tells us now the death rate is about 1.5%. But, you know, even still, even though that we have a, a much lower death rate, what we do know is that when COVID-19 gets into a home, um, staff who are infected are off between five to 10 days on average, mm-hmm. um, meaning who's left to care for people. Uh, and we know that residents are often forced to isolate in their rooms, uh, which can create more loneliness and isolation and, and, and further kind of limit their health and well-being. And it becomes harder for families um, to visit their loved ones as well. Mm-hmm. So, the, it, so there is a, a real interest in still making sure that we just don't even have COVID-19 in these homes because, yes, it may not kill you uh, as much as it would have, say, six waves ago, 
but the key is it's still an incredible nuisance when it gets in, and people can still have long-term health consequences, um, even if you know they'll still survive. What's the po- I mean, what's the likelihood of actually keeping it out, though? I mean, what could you possibly do beyond what we're already doing in terms of testing and whatnot? Well, I think there's still a lot of things that we can do to be vigilant. Uh, right now, I think we need to be making sure that we're we're ensuring that residents are um, are vaccinated and the staff are vaccinated. You know, with the, that that are up to date with their vaccinations, because we know as we lapse on those things, and we've seen this as we lapse, um, then it just increases the risk of people a getting infected and then b uh, potentially dying. We know that still, you know, universal masking protocols are important, um, that we still are vigilant with our screening, but we still haven't created some of the key structural changes that we need to. We're still building two bedded rooms in Ontario uh, when we know that the evidence says that a single bedded room accommodation is perhaps one of the best ways to kind of keep it, you know, keeping it from spreading. So we haven't changed structural things. We still have ensured that the majority of people working in our long-term care homes who are on a part-time basis without paid sick days can actually get um, um, paid sick time. So there's less of an incentive for them to take time off to isolate, for example, or even report their symptoms when it may mean that you just don't get paid and you don't get food on the table. So there are still structural issues that we just have glossed over um, and are hoping that the public has forgotten about. And I think those are the things that are not only going to allow COVID-19 to continue coming in and out of our homes, for example, but it also doesn't help us kind of manage other issues like influenza and other infectious diseases that we somehow kind of normalize um, and feel it's okay that a few thousand people die of every year. Well, you mentioned structural changes needed in long-term care. We saw earlier this week 90 long-term care homes are still without air conditioning units despite a heat wave. You know, have you heard any compelling excuses as to why this is the case? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, you know, this is the the big concern here is that nobody really even focused on this issue until um, until you know just two years ago when we started realizing that when you're I- having people isolate in their rooms, for example, yet many homes didn't have any air conditioning in the individual rooms of, of residents, um, that people realized, well, this is a problem because they're now baking themselves to death in in their rooms. Um, so. You know, the good news is, is once, you know, the media like yourselves brought a lot of attention to this, it it appropriately embarrassed the government to start uh, making sure that homes were going to be compliant. And the good news is that now we've moved from a few hundred homes without air conditioning in their their rooms to only 90 now that are still not fully. Part of the problem is that global supply chain issues or repeated outbreaks sorts of things have actually been delaying some homes from being able to make the upgrades. The other some of these homes are so old, they don't even have the electrical capacity to actually handle additional systems like this. Um, and these are homes that are in the process of being completely rebuilt. So there are a lot of issues like this at play. But the problem is, is that it's you know not clear again what are the other contingencies that we're making, um, given that there are still 90 homes and thousands of residents who are affected by this issue, that we still haven't figured out how to get them good air conditioning systems in place. And I do think, and you know, I hate to beat a dead horse here, but if these were children, our politicians would jump through hoops to fix it. And so Absolutely. you wonder, is this what yeah. ageism looks like? This is exactly what ageism looks like. And this is, and, and, you know, and I think that's perhaps, you know, a good way to kind of state all of this together, right? Air conditioning, data, information. These are our most vulnerable citizens in our society. And yet when we're not actually putting the effort in around basic things like this, um, it really boggles your mind and, and just reminds us that a lot of people think these are people who are expendable. Um, they're past their best before date. Um, these are people who often are living with dementia, so they're, it's hard for them and their families to advocate on their behalf. Um, these are significant issues that, that really, um, by allowing these problems to continue to fester, it just reminds us that fundamentally, you know, we're not thinking about our older people the way we should. And that doesn't bode well for any of us as we age as well. Well, Dr. Singha, I know you work tirelessly every day to make life better for the most vulnerable, our older adults. So thank you very much for the work that you do and also for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Marissa. When we come back, we'll be joined by a food critic for some lighter fun. We'll look at some must-visit restaurants for the summer. That's next. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. Welcome back. It's not too late to make the most of the summertime season, so why not check out some of what Toronto has to offer, including its diverse restaurant scene. Senior national lifestyle and food editor for Sun Media, Rita DeMontis, joins me now for some of her top recommendations. Good afternoon, Rita. Well, good afternoon, Marissa. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. You know, the thing that amazes me about Toronto's food scene is its diversity. In fact, it was just ranked the most diverse food scene in the world just a couple weeks back. I'm sure it's difficult to pick just one, but... (laughs) It is difficult. There's just so much to choose from. And, you know, this is an industry that was under siege and brought to its knees. It was, you know, bent but not broken, and many, many uh, restaurants are coming back, and they're they're reimagining the, their services and their menus and what they're offering. And and it's true, there's just so much to choose from. Now, you can go high end, of course. You know, the Don Alfonso eighteen ninety Toronto just recently opened up at the at the uh, Harbor Castle Hotel, and that was amazing because they really pumped in everything to make this one of the most um, dynamic and elegant food scenes in the city, if not all of Canada, because they brought in a three-star Michelin chef. And then you have on the other end of the spectrum, places like uh, like Milano's Pizza Place on Bloor Street, 388-6 Bloor Street, West in Etobicoke. They have been creating some of the most amazing, delicious, and affordable pizzas that you can imagine. They, they're sort of like a neighborhood institution. And even during the toughest times of the pandemic, they, they, they did their very best to, to cater to people. So it's wonderful to see all of this happening. So I would say it's exciting times to be in Toronto, especially now. This summer, TIFF is coming up. We're going to be on the red carpet. Well, we'll talk about TIFF in just a moment. But Rita, I'm envious of your job. Because you get to eat all over the place, and it's per- and it's for work. Well, it's work related. I'm not a food critic. I think it's important we we you know establish that. I'm sort of like a food voyager. I talk to <laughs> a variety of chefs. I'm just so blessed to talk to so many people in the food industry. It's incredible. Like you know, places like Myth in Toronto, which is traditional Greek cuisine uh, at you know 522 King Street West. Uh, keep in mind. Uh, King Street West is sort of like restaurant row. There's so much to choose from there. So this restaurant here in particular has taken traditional um, menu and 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 they've gone uh, you know uptown. They've gone upscale. This is not your run of the mill spanakopita, as we say. You know, and then there, of course, there's places like Scaramouche that has been around forever. It's in uh, Benvenuto Place, which is in the Avenue Road in Saint Clair area of the world. It has one of the best best views of the city if you're high atop and you look down and the menu is just so exquisite and it's so traditional and refined and and i just you know that's a real treat but you know toronto is offering so much uh the michelin stars are coming to town as Mm -hmm. they are across canada that's going to be quite interesting because frankly i think we've already always had michelin stars in our city well, we you know. do. Many of many Michelin chefs have hauled their stars stars north to open up shops here and have been for a while. But now we're getting an official guide. Yeah, exactly. So that's uh, it's kind of a it's 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 making the the food scene much more exciting. But at the same time, I, I've always been a, a supporter and a promoter of uh, all the eateries in our city, and, and we have some pretty wonderful places. Lots of humble fare. I mean, you know, there's a little place near me uh, in Etobicoke called uh, Richie Bakery, and it has one of the finest, best hot tables in this city. And you go there, there's a group of Italian grandmothers in the back, and they're churning out the lasagnas and the veal sandwiches and the pizzas, but they're doing an incredible job with it. They are such an institution. It's like cheers with food. (laughs) I like to hear that. You mentioned something earlier that I thought was interesting, and you said many chefs because of the pandemic, are reimagining their menus. And I spoke with one chef not too long ago, and she was just talking about in her own restaurant, she had imagined putting this delicious pasta al tono, like a pasta with tuna Mm -hmm. on her menu, but she couldn't do it during COVID because raw tuna doesn't travel very well. No. And so she was so excited to open her restaurant up again so that she could put these dishes on her menu and serve them to her clients 
um, in a way that, you know, kept with, you know, the, the integrity of the dish, if you will. Absolutely. And it's interesting because you can make a beautiful pasta con tono, as they call it, with a really good quality canned tuna. You can still create the same. Uh, and I think that's uh, at the core of what the restaurants are doing now. I'm, I'm happy that the plates are getting a little smaller. Uh, for a while there, especially during the rich, decadent uh, 1990s, everything was bigger and better and everything. And there was a lot of food waste. And that's a heartbreaker. So you're going to see things like smaller plates. More farm to table, more um, uh, smaller menus because the big exaggerated menus are going by the wayside, and also it's okay to to, to request a goodie bag. I think now before people would never ever ask for a goodie bag, regardless. Now that's sort of like um, a place of honor because people don't want to waste food. One of the biggest critical issues when it comes to the food scene is food waste. Mm-hmm. And I think especially when you look at the price of food going up, I was just, everything is going up. So Well, and I was just <laughs> going to say, you mentioned farm to table. Is that because of inflation in our, in our with our food? Partly that, and it's also partly the philosophy of the the chefs and the uh, and the restaurants and the fooderies. Like one of the, the chefs I have the biggest respect for is Chef Jason Bangardner from the Langdon Hall in Cambridge. Which oh, love Langdon Hall in Cambridge, love it. Uh, it's an award winner. He just came out with an amazing cookbook. Here's the thing: he's a forager. He, they have. I love restaurants that can go into their backyard and pick t- today's dinner. You know, I think there's such a reverence for that. There is a respect for that. And I just love that this is the philosophy that many, many eateries are embracing. So you are going to see smaller menus. You're going to see um, tra- traditional um, uh, ingredients are being reimagined. And, and humble fairy, eggs are going to be coming back. You're going to see a huge, huge increase in respectful vegan dishes. Uh, so they're, they're not named sort of like, uh, you know, like a hamburger, but there's no meat in it. It's actually going to be like a vegan dish that is respectful of the, of the, the eatery and the people who are ordering it. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's wonderful times to be. It's exciting. It's a little, um, nerve wracking because the industry isn't quite there yet, even though, uh, they've come back quite a bit. And, Part of the biggest challenges, surprisingly, is staffing. It's hard to get staffing. Really? Still? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I have, uh, I've spoken to people in the industry who say they'll have to close maybe a day or two because they can't get enough staff to run the place. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, you have to be so respectful of anyone who goes into this industry because it truly is a labor of love. When you are feeding people and you are putting yourself out there and you find, you know, especially some restaurants where the guy who owns it is also busting the tables, he's washing the dishes, he's creating meals, and he's putting a bill on the table as well. You have to be really respectful of that. I I expect it wouldn't be uncommon to see, and I've certainly seen this in my own neighborhood where I live, some restaurants that are closed during the day where pre-pandemic they were open, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that will close for for lunch and open for dinner because dinner is the busy rush. You're serving alcohol. The dishes, you know, the bills tend to be a little bit more expensive. And so when you're short on staff, you know, that probably is what makes most sense. Are you finding that? Exactly. Uh, some places are, um, they're, they're just being, they're looking at, before they had, they had, a, 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 you know, they had some wiggle room, as they say. Now they can't afford it. Every, every, every single dollar is being accounted for. And it has to be because, you know, people go into a restaurant and it's wonderful and, and, and you want that sense of uh, unity and comfort. There's so much happening in the background to make your dish come to the table perfect. So, and, and this is an area, it's, it's a sensitive topic, and I think it should be addressed. Is, you know, everything's just a little slower now. Service may be slower. Things take a little bit more time. It's when people go on social media and attack restaurants without having the full picture, or they'll give food reviews based on the fact that mm, dinner didn't come within the, you know three minutes or whatever, or they didn't comp me because they waited. I, I think people need to be a little bit more kinder, not only to this industry, but under other industries as well. But I think 
you know, it's lovely to go into a place, start shooting pictures of the food you're eating, put down the phone, make eye contact with uh, whomever is at the table with you, and enjoy the ambience. Enjoy the experience. It has to be really, really bad if you have to go on social media and diss uh, a restaurant that is struggling to put food on the table, not only for you, and that's just a little, you know. For many of its attendees, TIFF, you say, or you mentioned earlier, is one big, you know, 11 or 12 day party. Will your recommendations for restaurants look different for an event like this, particularly if you're interested in maybe spotting some celebs? Oh, yes. There's always. um, So it used to be all the way up in Yorkville, you'd see the, the celebrities and everything. Now they're all focusing on downtown. But I think when TIFF comes around, Celebrity spotting is interesting. Um, it just depends on the time of day and where the scrums are taking place. But right now you're seeing a lot of celebrities meandering around town as it is. Uh, Toronto especially is like yeah, Hollywood North is coming alive. So mm-hmm. TIFF is really going to put a um, a spotlight on, on where to eat and what to do. And I think also for people who are seeing uh, their favorite stars, you know, out and about, uh, if they want to have a nice meal, maybe it's not a good time to go <laughs> run up to them. Can I have your autograph, please, while you're eating your messy pasta there? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so. fair enough. Fair enough. I'm sure they wouldn't appreciate that very much. How about the cocktail scene, Rita, in Toronto? They're huge. The cocktail uh, scene is huge in this city, and it's getting even bigger. Uh, I went to Montreal uh, a few weeks ago Um I don't have the name of the gentleman right here, but uh, a Toronto-based uh, uh, bartender was voted the top cocktail master in Canada, and he's now going to Australia, and he's going to compete for the international scene in, in September sometime. And um, surprisingly, uh, the famed actor Stanley Tucci was the celebrity um he was a celebrity guest and also one of the judges, and he was. And I had the privilege of interviewing him. I have to tell you, the man is an amazing, just uh, a class act inside and out. And he told me that he found uh, the cocktail scene in Canada so exciting. And I think that is so awesome. Is that so, yeah? Is that Frankie Soleric of Bar Chef? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. I had yeah. the, I had the pleasure of of going to Bar Chef not too long ago, and those drinks they are so elaborate. It's like consuming a meal. It is. It is like it's just they're they're all going all out, yeah. and uh, but there's just so much happening. Yeah, and um, yeah, I think uh, and the cocktail scene they're going <laughs> surprisingly savory. There's a lot of savory um, cocktails coming out this season. And again, reflective of the Canadian cuisine scene. All right, Rita DeMontis. Did I pronounce that correctly? (laughs) You said it beautifully. It's an old Sardinian name. (laughs) Thank you for your time. Thank you. This has been so exciting. And everyone, bon appetito, as they say. (laughs) Take care. (laughs) Ciao. That is it for us today. I am here tomorrow. We'll see you then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.